Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hi there, it's Laura Wasser. And if anyone knows how much divorce sucks, it's me. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces. Creating peace in families is how I lost my voice. From the top of the food chain all the way down to my very first case, which was my own divorce when I was 25. I wrote the book on divorce, or I wrote a book on divorce. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, How to Divorce Without Destroying Your Family or Bankrupting Yourself. That book became a bestseller because it presented another option for ending a marriage, one that doesn't necessarily include lawyers and one that leaves more money in both parties' bank accounts and less animosity in their hearts. We created It's Over Easy, the one-stop breakup divorce resource online with the same principles in mind. So welcome to the Divorce Sucks podcast, where we talk about breaking up, getting divorced, and moving on. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Hi there. Welcome to the Sunny Side Up Report. I'm Laura Wasser. I'm Johnny Rains. How's it going, everybody? And this is the part of the show where Johnny and I go through everything that has happened in the world of divorce, breakups, relationships, online and in the news over the past week. Yes, and what a week it's been. We've got breaking news from Hollywood, why people should bury a bottle of bourbon at the site of their wedding before they get married, a few tips for blowing up your marriage, the good side of divorce, and what's new in Ireland besides Irish Spring. First like up, the soap. <laughs> yeah, the soap. Yeah. Oh, well, oh and it's dear. also springtime. Right. So it's it, summer now, babe. Is it? Yeah. But yeah. Has the summer equinox happened? No. First up from the Independent, and I actually saw this a few places. They picked up on it. The one story that we're reporting on is by Olivia Petter. Oh, yes. Gwyneth Paltrow explains why she doesn't live with her husband, Brad Fulchuk. And what do you think the reason is? I think it's probably because she she's smart enough to know that having separate bedrooms is the secret to a successful relationship. <laughs> the Goop founder explains she and her husband Brad spent four nights together at her house while he spends the remaining three at his own house with his children. She also comments on the family honeymoon she took that included both sets of children, her ex Chris Martin and his girlfriend Dakota Johnson. I, yeah, I like it. Yeah. I do. I think all this idea of blended family works sometimes, particularly when your kids are are young, but if your kids are a little bit older, the idea that you and your kids are in one place when they're with you and you can travel over to your new spouse or partner's house during that time, I think that's actually probably really healthy for kids in some circumstances. I'm into it. And God knows absence makes the heart grow fonder. Get a few nights to yourself, That's folks. what I'm saying. Next, 10 common wedding superstitions and what they mean. This is why Johnny was talking about bearing a bottle of bourbon. Had you ever heard that? No, I had not heard that one. What think, it, why do you do that? Well, that way when you actually come back to get married, you can dig it up and drink it. That's not true. It is so. Southern Folklore says a couple can prevent rain on their wedding day by bearing a bottle of bourbon at the wedding site one month before they're scheduled to walk down the aisle. Then the day of the wedding, which will most assuredly be dry with no rain clouds to be seen, they can dig it up and, of course, have a toast to their new marriage. So I guess it's to stop the rain from falling, but... Well, the next one is rain on the wedding day. Remember that Alana song? It's like rain. But, uh, we don't... We're good. But Hindu tradition thinks it's actually good luck to have rain on the wedding day, so don't worry about that. I always wondered why you weren't supposed to see each other or the the groom wasn't supposed to see the bride before the ceremony. Yes. And I think it's really funny. It dates back to arranged marriages, and it was designed to keep couples with cold feet from bolting. I like it. So you don't even get to see them until you actually are, get there. 
This one is by Kimberly Holland from Southern Living. Of course, from Southern Living. And just one more that I also always wondered about. Yes. Um, the something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Oh, yes. This goes back to the, the Victorian era. Um, something old is a symbol of the bride's past. Something new is for the couple's future. You're only meant to borrow something from someone who's happily married, so their good fortune rubs off on you. And then something blue is a sign of fidelity and love. Hmm. I, I like that one. What about ringing bells before the ceremony? Had you ever heard of that any having yeah. any significance? No, it just it's the it's just something harmonious, family life. I like that. But like every movie that you're in, if there's a wedding scene, it right. like kind of zooms in on the bell on the bell situation. Well, apparently it's to keep evil spirits away. That, that too. Of course. <laughs> Marriage counselors are sharing the most common mistakes couples make, and they are so, so real. Asia McLean from BuzzFeed. 25 mistakes that people in a relationship make. And allegedly, this list comes from professional marriage counselors, even um, if number 17 is annoyed jalapeno. That's the marriage counselor's tag name. Supposedly. What is what is number 17? Number 17, bringing a child into a broken marriage, expecting them to be a lifesaver. It has never worked and will never work. Well, Thank duh. you. Thank you, an annoyed jalapeno. <laughs> I, I, th- I like this one. Going to a marriage counselor thinking they're like a judge and will tell you who's right and who's wrong. That's not what a marriage counselor is supposed to do. Well, number 19 reminds me of some of the stuff that we've discussed on the podcast. Uh, she, this alleged marriage counselor says, marrying someone they wouldn't go into business with. I'm a paralegal, and I always tell people that if you can't imagine yourselves opening a dry cleaning business, creating the next great startup, or running a B&B together, then do not marry that person. Because marriage is a legal business, a contract that creates a business relationship with the other person, and to marry them is to open a business enterprise with them. So is she a paralegal or a marriage counselor? Maybe she's a paramarital counselor. (laughs) Um, I like this one, and it is fitting for today. Many couples make the mistake of thinking that sex shouldn't be talked about, just intuitively understood. But life doesn't work like that. Sex is good, important, and okay to talk about. Right? I'll say. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Next. Next up, we've got an article written by this uh, millennial young lady. It's called My Parents Are Divorced, but it's actually the best thing that could have happened. It's written by Amanda McCoy about one young woman's experience digesting how her parents got divorced and why they got divorced and growing to appreciate the new relationships that came out of her parents' divorce. And I I think this is interesting because so often on podcasts, on our podcast, we talk about people getting divorced. We talk about how the kids are doing if they're younger, but we don't talk as often about adult children whose parents have gotten divorced and how that can still really change a family dynamic and how we as adult children need to really examine what that means for us, our feelings about marriage, relationship, and our family, and also making it okay. So I thought this was a really interesting article and how she went back and spoke to each of her parents about what had happened when they got divorced and how she finally, for the first First time actually grieved the dissolution of her, her family unit much, much later, but knowing that it was very important for the four of them in the family to be a family and still continue being a family, even though her parents divorced and now are both married to wonderful other people. Yeah, I think it's nice. She also says how close she's become with the new partners of her parents. And the last thing that they say in the article is people still ask me at times if there's a part of me that wishes my parents would have worked things out. To them, I merely smile and say that I wouldn't change a thing and I genuinely wouldn't. And finally, the biggest divorce news. Ireland votes to liberalize divorce laws in referendum landslide. This is from iNews UK. 
it was at the very end of May that voters in Ireland voted to reduce the amount of time it takes to get divorced in that country from a mandatory wait time of four years down to two, which is still, as we know in the United States a lot, California, from where we podcast, is six months. And that's one of the longest waiting periods in the country. Can you imagine four years? All no. that could happen there. So they, they, they were a bit behind. They caught up. It's still two years. But there were, it was a landslide vote. They were definitely ready for it. I was keeping up with it because I was really interested. And just so that you listeners know, divorce wasn't legalized in Ireland until 1995. Then they kind of caught up quickly. In 2015, same-sex marriage was approved. In 2018, abortion was decriminalized. And then in 2018, the blasphemy laws were abolished. So th- they are catching up in Ireland. They are getting divorced a little bit more quickly. We, you know, it isn't exactly ripping the Band-Aid off, but it's getting shit done. Well, it's fascinating also when you think about, it, like, when you call it a landslide, there were over a million people who voted to uh, change the waiting period between, you know, four years to two years. And there's only 4.8 million people in the country. Right. So, I mean, that's like a third of the country. Magically delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us this morning on the Sunny Side Up Yeah, next up is Susan Estrich, speaking of the law. People ask me all the time, how do I know when to leave a relationship? Generally, there are no lightning bolts or magical signs that tell you when it's time to get divorced. Instead, it may be a slowly building realization that the pain or oppression of being in the relationship exceeds the fear or anxiety of being on your own. I know divorce is never going to be a fun process, but if it's over easy, we'd like to make it a process that is an evolution onto your next stage or next chapter. Rather than the end of something, a breakup is really the beginning of something. Today's show is dedicated to that, to your next chapters and the start of something fresh and new. And joining us today to share her insight into what's next is a trailblazer who has actually written countless new chapters in her dazzling life. And, and I just, I want to say, sometimes I'll go speak at law schools and some of mostly young Young women, but sometimes young men will come up to me and say, oh my God, Miss Wasser, it's so nice to meet you. And I think, God, I can't believe these kids like even know who I am. That's how I was <laughs> about Susan Estrich. Okay. So she's the first woman president of the Harvard Law Review, the first woman to run a national presidential election campaign and the youngest woman to be tenured at Harvard Law School. And she made a mess of her own divorce. And she made a mess. She's here. An excellent counsel she's... who is sitting across the table from me and her esteemed dad who was ready to have me sign a paper saying I am doing this against legal advice because I was so determined to bend over backwards not in my best interest she she, she we will discuss. other than that mrs lincoln it was great we will discuss that horror story today's guest she's a prolific author a professor at usc gould school of law and in fact her life is so interesting that oscar winner allison janey is portraying her in annapurna's untitled charles randolph film that's all about her real life experience representing fox news kingpin roger ailes we are so super honored to have you here super honored. Susan Estrich. We better tell you guys her name. This is Susan. Laura is the best of the best. And (laughs) she really is. Can see why I picked her. (laughs) When I was getting divorced, I knew Dennis, her dad, and he's very close to mutual friend, Bert Fields, who who looked at me. You know, the first thing my ex-husband did was get a lawyer. I hadn't even thought about getting a lawyer because I thought maybe there's some mediator out there that will just sit down with us and we both care about the children and that's really the priority. 
And then I heard that he had gotten a lawyer and was now proposing a mediator that his lawyer had worked with. And I got in the car with Bert Fields, who's a very famous and celebrated lawyer and a probably 50-year friend of your dad's. I get in the car with Bert and his wife, Barbara. We're going to this festival in Orange County, and I tell him this new development, and he looked at me and said, who is representing you? I said, well, I've been a law professor. I'm a little bit fancy on these grounds. He said, I probably could handle it myself. He said, no, you cannot handle it yourself. You are going to be the worst client (laughs) on the planet. Who do I know well enough that they will forgive me for sending them you. And he decided it was your dad. So he said he owes me a lot of favors. He called from the car. He said, it's, you know, mishpacha time. I was a disaster of a client because I didn't want to fight about anything. And the adversary system, which I live with, I'm a practicing lawyer. I'm a partner in Boyce Schiller, a big law firm. I do this every day. The adversary system is so badly suited to resolving a divorce, that it was only a matter of time before the folks with the most to lose in this game, and that's your high net worth clients, would decide, wait a second. We get two adversary lawyers with time, the clocks are going at $1,000 an hour. We can go for years fighting about this. And if you just translate that to the average person, you know, it's you'll use up your entire savings. I mean, the family law bar at one point killed a bill that would have protected the family home because how else would you pay the lawyer's fees? I mean, it's really quite terrible. So what you're doing, Laura, is I think the most interesting and forward-looking thing, which is high net worth individuals, people with a lot of money who care about their children and don't want a public spectacle of their separation, hire you and you look out for both of them better than either of them would actually look out for themselves. And your goal is to solve it, not run a clock on both sides. And, you know, when I see people going to actual trials over divorces, you know, where there are children involved, I want to say to myself, what planet did you come from? I mean, how average people, you know, like people who are not maybe going out with the richest man in the world, let's say, your most recent client, um, don't have that kind of thing to parcel in. How does an average middle class person well, take advantage of this and not get hoodwinked by the sea of divorce lawyers who are out there? Because remember, divorce is a one-off. Right. So, so nobody is banking on repeat clients. You can exactly. screw one after another, after another, after okay, but another. But that, that being said, Susan, there is word of mouth. There are referrals. Bert would never have sent you to our firm if he thought that we were no, going to screw you. No, there were great you. referrals. But, you know, when I was in the medical field, when I got sick about four years ago, I relied on referrals. And I thought I was so smart that I knew who to get the best referrals from. And then, of course, good referrals would give you good people. It it sometimes works. It sometimes does not work. What I find in your area especially is that a lot of people, men and women, are so driven by emotion that they are not even in a position to, you know, I I had one girlfriend who said to me, must try this divorce lawyer. She said, you know, I just adore him. I talk to him every day. I said, for how long? Right. She said, oh, he's bad. At least he's always available. I said, how much are you paying an hour? And she told me, and I said, your shrink would be cheaper. Right. I mean, this is people taking advantage of. I say that to people all the time. If you are hiring a divorce attorney, you need a problem 
problem solver. Right. You need someone who has a touch of ADD so that they don't want to talk to you for years and years and years on end. And they need someone who's really going to look at it through a very neutral lens and and have and be a voice of reason so that you can they can reel you in and say, I know you're really, really, really angry about that vase. Let's go get another vase with the money you saved from me writing a letter to his lawyer about about how much you need the vase. But they do that, you know? Yes. And so I think the question is, how do you do it, you know, if you can't afford to go out and hire Laura Wasser? And you know darn well, I should turn my phone off. (laughs) And you know darn well that you've got a lot of emotion riding. Maybe you're the one who feels so overwhelmingly guilty and has been manipulated because you feel guilty. You're a woman who should have made it work. It's not going to be good for your kids. Or how about you're just really pissed because you got cheated on? Or you're very pissed because you got cheated on and you're not thinking about what's fair or best. You're thinking about revenge. Right. Which is also not a good thing in the long run. You're acting out of anger, out of guilt. There's all kinds of tremendously stupid things to act out of. And if you've got an advocate who's on the clock and his goal is to make as much money, which is what most of them want to do, they have no interest in resolving it. They have an interest in you know what they do. They, they, they stir play, the pot. They stir the pot. You're absolutely right. Oh, that's horrible. That's one of the worst <laughs> things I've ever heard in my life. Instead of, right. calm down here, okay? Your kids are going to read the book, all right. right? Your kids are going to hear this story, and they're going to find out X and Y and Z. Or look at what you actually need, right. not what you want. Right. Or not, not how to punish him. Or not how to make it equal. It doesn't need to be equal. It needs no, to be able to be what's right for you. So, so to answer the question, we started It's a over easy, which is an online divorce platform. But more than that, we have content because if you are an average Joe, you don't have somebody billing at $900 no. an hour to explain it to you. And so you need to read about it and you need to talk about it and you need to communicate about it. We have support systems in place that it's over easy. We have an index that gives you providers, whether it's somebody that's going to give you a great massage because you've just had a terrible day, whether it's mediators, whether it's someone to help you find new health or life insurance because it's no longer available because of your divorce. So we started changing the face of divorce. We start, as we call it, the evolution of dissolution. And we've got therapists that are in place with it. And we've got providers that are in place with it. We've got lawyers that are in place with it in different states. And we make it easier for people to educate themselves, communicate with each other, and get it done less expensively and treat it both like the business transaction that it is, and then also other outlets for what will definitely be a difficult emotional healing time. That is so smart. Why do these wassers always figure it <laughs> for anybody else? You see, that is really smart. And, I, and I'm not being paid here. I'm just a measly old law professor who's been practicing law for a very long well, let's, time. Let's talk about and, that. No, no. I want to talk about you for a second. No, Again, they know about me. No, but, I, but it's really important because I wrote this whole book, Laura, after I got divorced. I wrote this whole book about divorce. So I dug really into the law, into what was going on, into the, you know, utter failure, frankly, of the equality and no-fault movement to resolve any of this. I mean, I used to have judges come up to me and say, oh, Susan, you'd be so happy. I'd say, what? They'd say, I struck a blow for equality today. I'd say, what did you do? He said, I gave custody to the father. (laughs) And I would look (laughs) at him and say... Tell me that the mother didn't want custody. Oh, yes, she did. I said, tell me that she was ill or suffering. No, no, no. I said, what was her sin, Your Honor? He said, you know, she works seven days a week. Uh And this was happening everywhere in these contentious disputes. 
between my generation of working women who were trying to hold on to their kids. And, you know, the term green meal was popularized mm -hmm. then because we were paying it. I'm not saying me in particular, but most the people who suffered most from the change of divorce laws, at least in the first years, were working women. Right. I mean, traditional women held on to their kids and got what they could from the husband, fault or no fault, because they're home and they've got the kids. You know, your father explained to me at one point what was going on in this county with women who worked the way I worked mm -hmm. and traveled the way I traveled and occasionally enjoyed a cocktail as I occasionally, and when you're going through a divorce, maybe not so occasionally or, or did. several cocktails, right? Yeah, exactly. And I just was shocked, but I wasn't shocked because I'd read about it and studied it. I knew the person in Atlanta who left a partnership in a big law firm, and the woman in D.C. was Republican general counsel to judiciary, and all of these women hit the wall when a court basically said to them, choose between your kids and your job. Right. And when it Frankly, when a man faces that choice, we all say, well, of course, he sees them on Wednesday and every other Sunday. Isn't that wonderful? And we say, yeah, how old are they? But when a woman says to you, I'm seeing my kids on Wednesday and every other weekend, you think, what? What did wrong? he do what, wrong? What, you know, what did she must be nuts or crazy or, you know, the stigma is different. The reaction is different. But, you know, if we don't find ways to mediate these disputes, they are not disputes you ever, ever want to leave to a judge who's had a bad morning. Right. Or who's really new. So many of our oh, judges, particularly at L.A. Superior well, Court, they're very new. And they don't know, and they try to figure out what the law is. And, of course, there is no law. All right? When I, I used to teach this stuff in my gender classes, and I would begin by saying, you know, would you like to play God? Because you are now a judge in the family court, and you are making decisions best resolved by somebody other than a lawyer as to which law really doesn't help you very much. In fact, it imposes a system that's totally contrary to what you should try to be doing. And where, you know, the problems go so far beyond law that unless you're dealing with the full range of problems, you're just sort of solving one little right. piece and it's, it's going like to whack them all. <laughs> and it's going to ripple into everything else right. and it's going to produce hard feelings forever and ever. And how many guys, ladies, have we dealt with over the years whose first words out of their mouth is about, you know, how their ex wife screwed them in the divorce and they live with that forever and so does everybody else. Yes. So it's not good for anybody. So what you're doing is really pioneering. I have to tell you one story. When your dad was representing me, uh, one of the big donors over at USC had, was sponsoring this forum on family law. And they came to me, well, I'm not really an expert on family law, but, you know, they wanted to, the big names from USC. So Erwin Jemerinsky looks at me and says, you're doing it too? I said, what's your excuse? He said, what's your excuse? I said, I'm going to get to sit next to my lawyer, Dennis Wasser, for hours on end without having to pay. I said, that's, <laughs> that's as good a reason as any. So so that's what I did. Are, he, are you sure he didn't try to send you a bill afterwards? He did yeah, not. Watch he him. He did not. Mm -hmm. Nah, I had Bert behind me. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem with me was I listened to nothing. Um, so I'm sitting next to him, and I look at, and you know, I wore just a plain old wool suit, you know. Dad comes in in a plain old wool suit. It could be any me. If you're looking at the stage, it could be any meeting of lawyers anywhere in the country. And I looked out, and it was a sea of polyester. <laughs> and I thought, wait, Dennis, these folks don't look like the sort of cream of the crop. Right. And he said, you're not aware of the fact that, in general, family law is not the cream of the crop. Of course. For law school graduates and for young lawyers. And it is really, you know, 
fairly or unfairly, there is an inherent bias in legal education and in the stratification zone for family law. And it's because it's so many of it's women. Mm-hmm. It's so you need a lot of the people in that audience. I have to tell you the dominant question. You know, here you have Irwin, who's a constitutional law scholar, now the dean of Berkeley, and I'm pretty smart. Your dad's unbelievably smart about this. And the only question people keep asking us 15 ways to Tuesday is how do you collect the bill? <laughs> All right? And Dennis had knocked me at the beginning and said, I said, what are they going to be asking about the gender issues? He looks at me like I'm like out of my mind. He said, you have unique you know, plans or methods of collecting <laughs> bills. I said, not really. He said, well, then I guess I'm going to have to work today. Right? And, and I'm sorry to say, because I know there are a lot of people who try every day in good faith to help people resolve these disputes and hit the wall. And I know what it's like to yell at your own client and say, you know, you're being crazy. But when I yell at my own client and tell them they're being crazy, at the end of the conversation, I still have to go out and be their advocate. Right. And that puts me in one of the most uncomfortable positions I find myself in as a lawyer. When you do it as a mediator, you don't have to do that. Right. I mean, you can stand up to both sides. Yes. And they understand that they've given you that power precisely because they don't want to end up with two paid advocates yelling at each other with their children and their family and their businesses and their lives. Absolutely. Hanging in between and on page six. I mean, why would anyone, if the rich people, as I always said, I used to protest when one of my girlfriends would insist that I go to Dr. Arnie Klein. It was the celebrity dermatologist, Michael Jackson's dermatologist. I would say, I don't go in for that celebrity stuff. And one day she looked at me because I had this bad rash. She said, who do you think cares more about their skin? You are the biggest celebrities in this town. I said, they live by their skin. Of course they care more. She said, that's why you're going to the celebrity dermatologist. (laughs) And she was right. He diagnosed it off the spot, and there it was. You've got the best people in town, the richest people in this world coming to you, which I hope everybody understands is such an amazing testament to trust in fairness because you're really giving your whole life to you. And if it blows up and you walk away, it's going to damage both of them enormously. And they know it. You're holding the power in a very real way. And you're entrusted with it. That's a a measure of your reputation. Thank you. And everybody needs somebody like you. But most people don't understand it. And they end up on a by-the-hour thing. And I, I think the one piece of advice I would give everybody is, you know, get straight at the outset how much money you're willing to spend to fight this out. Right. Because ultimately, that is what it will be about if you go down the adversary system. Whoever runs out of money first will cave right. on whatever they're fighting about. Totally true. Right? So so that's it. But most lawyers will say to you, oh, it'll only take $20,000. Make sure they tell you when you're within $5,000 yes. of hitting your limit. Because it could at your be bills. the first week. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? So I want to go back to something that you said, because I really want to touch a little bit on gender and feminism today. And, and again, those of you who don't know who Susan Estrich is, look it up. She's done some amazing work, not only politically, but with regard to the feminist movement and, of course, with regard to rape. 
because she was a rape victim. She's taught classes. She's written a couple books about this. And I want to talk about all of these things in the current light of not only family law, because I do think that both parents still end up getting penalized for being the working parent. For some reason, it's more of a shock to us women when we're like, wait, what do you mean? How can this be happening? Not just about custody, but about having to pay support to that lemming that's just sitting on the couch the whole time. And we all were so pissed on her behalf. And of course, there was no particular reason to be this pissed, except we certainly have different expectations of men. Yes. I mean, I think that's that's certainly true. still happening in 2019. It absolutely is, I promise you. But I'm interested in what you think and all, everything that you've seen and done over the years. Do you think that the Me Too movement, do you think that we have gone too far? No, I think you have to, you know, you have to take a sharp turn sometimes. You have to take a jump, you know, and and will there be some men who are unfairly treated? Unfortunately, there will be. Will there be women who aren't hired because men are afraid to have that kind of discourse in the office, in, in, the, I, in the political? I don't know that they or, won't be hired, okay, because if you catch somebody not hiring you in a visible situation. It's the unconscious bias, okay? You know, there's a natural tendency to always replicate yourself. I used to joke that, you know, all my research assistants, now my executive assistants, are mini-me's. Surprisingly enough, there tend to be women from middle class or lower middle class backgrounds who have enormous determination and drive, and, you know, there it is. I I don't know why I'm so comfortable with them, but that's what we all do. And it's an unconscious thing. So for women to advance, we have to have women and men in place who are consciously fighting that bias. Right. And the problem right now is there are even more reasons feeding the bias. In, in other words, if I call men on it, they'll notice that they've just staffed a case entirely with men. Right. And it's not that they thought, let's keep the women out. It's just that they thought of when adding a particular person, this guy would fit in better. This guy would be easier. And it's their problem. I mean, I think we have to all pay attention to that to make sure it doesn't happen. But what's also a danger right now is that, you know, women in the middle right now of the pipeline are going to face, you know, are going to have to go out of their way to defang themselves mm-hmm. in some respects to get to the top. Because, you know, I see men who I haven't seen in a while and they hug me hello as they have done for a hundred years and then they say, is it okay? Are you going to complain against me? And they are so, I'm like, I'm like, what are you, crazy? Of course not. Right. But there's this sensitivity out there that borders on hostility mm-hmm. that I think we really need to watch out for. But as for going too far, look, there were going to be a few celebrated cases that should not be cases. I think Tom Brokaw got off a got a really terrible deal, and frankly, I'd like to bring back Al Franken because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't think you know you're in a comedy routine. I mean, come on. Um, but for all that, you and I both know that there are plenty of men around this town who, to this day, are behaving in ways worse than any of the men who have been caught and hung before dawn. And we just know that. And the exception 
is when women come forward. Right. Most women are not in a position to come forward. And I think what was so striking for a lot of people about the Harvey Weinstein stuff and, and some of these other revelations is these are the most beautiful women in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like somebody who looks like me has to get on her knees, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, these are the most beautiful, most desirable, most talented women in the world. And if they are reduced to getting on their knees before a man for whom they have no, you know, sexual attraction whatsoever, that that's what they need to do, that's the price of a job, that is really an eye-opening experience for a lot of people as to what it must be like for women way lower down. Hasn't that been happening in Hollywood forever, though? It has been, and it has to stop. And one of the things that's most shocking about it is that it continues, you know, it continues to happen brazenly. I mean, you you read some of these conversations, you know, why didn't I tell you not to do it with the studio chairman? You need to do it with a producer or director to to get the... I mean, really, these are contemporary quotes that young women who are desperately... We see them in every restaurant we go to. Yes. Young women and young men who are desperate to make it in this business and literally are willing to do anything to get there and then most often sleep their way to the bottom. I always say to women who say, well, this is sexual power. Shouldn't we use it? I say, sure, use it. Good luck. Right. You know, for every woman who gets to the top using her sexual power, I will find you, you know, a hundred lying in the ground. You have been stompled by the stamp, by the next woman behind them. And that's the other part we never like to talk about is, you know, it's so hard for some of us to recognize that not all women are our friends. Right. And that kind of frustration and anger is also really tough to deal with. I mean, who do you hate? Your ex-husband or the woman who was so thoughtless about your children and family that she swooped right in under your nose and was having dinner at your house even as she was stooping your husband on a business trip. Right. I mean, what's a woman to do in that circumstance except be mad as hell at everyone and want revenge, which is probably inconsistent with her desire to hold on to her children and do best by them and get enough money to support them going forward rather than be in a bitter war where he gets his back up and she gets her back up and everybody's got their back up and by the end they're selling the house. Right, exactly. Tell us, I want to hear you tell our listeners, Susan, the difference between aggravated and simple rape. Okay. Well, you know, I know I sound like I'm jumping around, but I promise no, listeners no, no. there's a method to my madness. You know, when I first started, I was raped in long time ago. Um, <laughs> and I was going to start law school that fall. And um, when I started looking at the law of rape, which, believe me, wasn't even taught in law schools then, except as a question of relevant evidence, which, of course, your sex life was relevant. Between what I met in the backseat of a police car, which was, you know, a combination of racism and sexism of sort of the worst kind, you know. Who would I, did I know him? How would she know him? All right. I mean, I walk this fine line between the racist and the sexist, and it's not a place you want to be. So I started studying the law, realized the law was terrible, tried to figure out what was going on in the law. So at one point I sat down and read every decided rape case in any court, in any jurisdiction that found its way to any piece of paper in the country. 
And there was a very clear pattern of distinction among rapes. And there were two indicators, one of which seemed to me fair and one of which totally unfair. In other words, even though there was only one crime of rape, courts and prosecutors and everybody else managed to find a way to distinguish between those that used weapons or threats of violence or acts of violence and those that did not. And that's very similar to what we do with robbery, say, or burglary, you know, is it or assault in particular. We say, was it a simple assault, in which case I push you and you push me back, but nobody's got a gun or a knife or a deadly weapon, or did you come at her with a knife? That's assault with a deadly weapon. Seemed to me that was a fair basis for distinction, and we ought to give that up. In other words, we, we needed to recognize that there had to be some degrees of rape, because if you're charging the kid in college with the same crime you're charging, uh, you know, guy with a gun at a street corner, you're never going to convict the kid at college. So, so that was a distinction I bought into and sort of put out there as a basis for beginning the process uh, of having degrees of sexual assault and from touching to, you know, armed <laughs> intercourse in order to have more opportunities, frankly, to convict men who had not met the second criteria, which was very much about race and prior relationships. In other words, if a white woman was raped by a single white man, never won, all right? Just almost never won. In the absence of guns or whatever, gone. On the other hand, if a white woman was raped by a black man, which was unusual, believe me, but this is how the law evolved, automatic conviction, right? And so they would go out of their way, the courts, to enforce these old rules to punish women who were, in effect, in inappropriate relationships. The women who did worst, I should add, were black women in those days mm -hmm. because they could be raped by anybody, you see. I mean, a black man would get away with raping a black... I mean, they, there was one great opinion that said, I mean, this was an experienced woman of the same race. Oh, How God. could she not know what was about to come? I was like, oh, if she had been an experienced woman of a different race, perhaps she would have been surprised. So so the law evolved in this very ugly way. In And then what happened in the legal evolution was that as the 60s liberals came of age and saw the way racism was pervading the definition and the enforcement of rape laws, the, the marching cry became bringing back those old requirements like corroboration and fresh complaint and the like and using them to try to protect black men from a racist system, which would have been fine, except most of the time it wasn't protecting black men from a racist system. It was punishing victims across the board. Right. Except she was asking for it. She was an experienced woman. Date she should rape have known. is not really rape. The first question everybody asked me after race was, did you know him? And right. I thought, what difference does that make? I just told you I was raped in a parking lot. All right. You want more details? I mean, I had all the boxes checked and yet that was the most important one. And, and it struck me as so horrendously unfair because what I came to understand is if you're raped by somebody, you know, you, there better be three of you or you better have wounds. Right. And, and that's a terrible thing to come to realize and that was the stimulus for my getting into this area and trying to figure out how you bring civil suits for sexual assault, you know, how you identify third parties who should be responsible for, you know, providing security and don't, but how you begin 
to move beyond that stereotype of Willie Horton. Right. If you're old enough, you know that I had the unusual fortune of running a campaign in which a black man's rape of a white woman was the prime weapon used against my candidate who didn't or wouldn't see that the very image of this was going to destroy him. And that if he didn't confront it and kept talking about the furlough policy, he would be toast, which he was. Which he was. Can you be raped by your husband? Of course you can. I mean, women were especially raped by their husband. And one of the unfairness of the law when I got started here was what they called the spousal exception. The idea that you couldn't be raped by your husband. And in fact, the only case I ever was in the casebook, I looked in the casebooks when I started teaching law back in the early 80s. And I was going to teach criminal law. I was the only woman teaching in the first year. In fact, I think I was the only woman teaching at all that term. And I decided with all my 28-year-old bravado that I would introduce rape into the curriculum. So I looked for cases in all the books. And the only case I could find was the case, a case from the House of Lords in which an English sailor had taken his wife, his, his buddies, drunk buddies home to his wife and told them that his wife only liked to have sex when she was screaming and yelling and resisting. So all four of them proceeded to have sex with her as she was screaming and yelling and resisting. And could the other three be convicted of rape? And the answer of the House of Lords was that even though she was kicking and screaming and fighting, you know, how did they know she didn't like it? And I dropped my jaw and I thought, I'm going to teach this case and I'm going to tear it to part and I've never stopped. But you know, it, it wasn't in the curriculum. It was round down by, you know, considerations of both racism and sexism that left victims without a voice. And so my goal over the last umpteen decades has been to found a law center in Boston that represents victims and finds lawyers for victims. It's called the Victims' Rights Law Center in Boston. And one of my old students founded it at from Harvard. And we've, we help women across the country who are the victims of domestic assault find, or sexual abuse or rape find some representation in the system because they get lost, particularly in the criminal justice system, they get lost inside of their own cases and they don't really have an advocate because prosecutors want a high win right. That right. doesn't mean that they prosecute every case. And you have to understand how that system works and also understand the civil alternatives to a criminal conviction. So... That's some of the good stuff I do. Is America ready? You can answer this question and go back in time to 2016, or you can answer it in 2019 for a female president. I'm not at all sure, okay? Because for all the way we treat Hillary, people now treat Hillary as if she was just the worst candidate on the planet. And look at these mistakes. I invite you to look at it again. Hillary was about the most qualified person ever to run for president when she stood on that podium. And more than that, she had not only paid her dues, but, you know, she was very careful. She did not make a lot of mistakes. Okay, when she made them, she should have owned them. I agree with that. But if you just look at her over the course of how many years in public life, under the microscope every single day, we can probably count on two hands her bloopers, all of which we know because she was covered in a way that no other first lady Couldn't before or since. So, so how is it that a guy like Donald Trump, who I think most of us think any middle-of-the-road, mid-cast <laughs> male Democrat probably would have beat, 
How come he lost to an extraordinarily qualified woman? One. How come? Well, how come he won? Yeah. Right. How come Hillary lost right. to this guy? And, and the only explanation I think I invite you to consider, but I, I think um, if it were a male Hillary, all of her traits would be accepted. The fact that she's a little bit stubborn, a little bit stubborn. Look at Donald. <laughs> I mean, really? You know, she had her little email server. I mean, he's got God knows what in terms of business and personal records. And people are like, yeah, he doesn't want to let him out. Tough. Okay? I mean, so, so you look at her and you think, how the hell did she lose? You know? How did this guy beat her? And, I mean, I don't know how you figure it without putting gender in the equation. Does that mean we hold women and men candidates to different standards? Obviously, you've known that. I've known that forever. I remember when I went out with Jerry, Jerry I got the call that Jerry Ferraro was going to be on the ticket. And the Mondale people called me and said, you know, Blah, blah, blah. Where do we reach her? How do we get her? For you young listeners, that's Geraldine. Ferraro, the first woman to be on the ticket ever. In 1984. (laughs) And I hung up one phone, and I picked up the other phone, and I called her, and I said, get to the hairdresser. Okay? Do not stop. Do not answer your phone until you are settled in the hairdressers, and you've got everything going on, and then... You can answer your phone because they knew damn well the first thing they would focus on. And I sent somebody to buy her favorite shoes in Georgetown and we put together a couple outfits because they knew damn well that whatever came out of her mouth, the first thing everyone would focus on is how does she look. Right, right. And, you know, that is not the first regimen I have had with male candidates over the years, but it it continues to be a double standard. And, and in some respects, it might help you stand out from the field. But we found over and over when women are standing for executive office, look at California, we've never had a woman governor. We've never had a woman mayor in this city. San Francisco's only woman mayor, Diane Feinstein, got through, through you know, predecessors mm-hmm. being shot down. Um, when women stand for executive positions, and this is true in corporate America as well, they have a tougher obstacle to overcome, again, unconsciously, about whether they're tough enough, whether they're ambitious enough, whether they're too ambitious. They, you walk a different line right. to likability. And a sort of ambitiousness that might not be likable in a woman is readily Fine accepted in a man. In a man. A- and if you don't recognize that, you're going to end up doing Hillary 2.0. I think the other lesson, though, Laura, the bigger one, is that you know liberal feminism that I was brought up on was based on this idea that we would beat them at their own game storm the barricades, and then we change the rules. Okay, so it, at the same time as men would be coming over to the private sector, to home and family, and we'd be storming the barricades, and ultimately all the lines would come down, and everybody would live happily ever after with women working less and men taking care of kids more. That didn't happen, okay? That's the Hillary model. She spent I don't know how many years trying to beat the guys at every single game they played. She never lived by girls' rules. She didn't bake the damn chocolate chip cookies. She went out and represented clients. She did it their way. And what she discovered at the end was that it didn't work. She couldn't beat them at their own game because it was their game. And trying to be just like them, just the same, failed. So what excites me about the new generation of Democrats is that they don't, you know, 
when I stood, every woman candidate like wore the same clothes, right? Right. right. The skirt suit, right? The appropriate skirt suit with the mid heel shoes. I mean, it was like you, you could pick them out a mile away, and then they moved to pantsuits, <laughs> right? And it was like, oh, give me another boring pantsuit. Let me see how many do I have now, right? In how many colors? And you're seeing a whole new generation of women who do did not work their way up in the traditional way, who did not start by, you know, cooking brownies for the, you know, state assembly or whatever, doing leaflets and the city council, who have just come on to politics because they have something to say and a place they want to say it, and they're not changing their clothes or their style or their hair color to do it. And I think it's great because I, I think we have to come to the point where we recognize that equality is not in and of itself the goal in numeric terms. Most of us don't want to live the lives of your typical equal man. Agreed. Agreed. So we want something different, and we have to measure what we want according to what we need and according to standards and values that go beyond the traditional, as I say, male model of who's successful and who isn't and measures it all in terms of money. So if you're going to get revenge, what do you do? You get money. The best revenge is served cold. Way down the road when you decide if you even need it anymore. And I think nine times out of ten, you look at the dish at that point and go, God, that's cold. (laughs) You know, it's sort of undigestible, and why would I want to go back to that? Get to Old Navy Saturday for 50% off all sweatshirts, frost-free puffer vests for 15 bucks for adults, 12 bucks for kids, and leggings, just 8 bucks for women, 5 bucks for girls, Saturday at Old Navy. Valid 10-5, select vests only. 50% off excludes in-store clearance, active and licensed. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. Hi, everybody. You have to check out this amazing new true crime podcast. It's called 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. It's about a murder that took place in Washington, D.C. A family and their housekeeper were held hostage for 19 hours before being killed when the murderers set their mansion on fire. You will be shocked by what they went through during those 19 hours, and you won't believe how they found the guy. I'm not going to ruin the ending, but all I will say is pizza crust. I'm telling you, it's awesome. Podcast One teamed up with award-winning journalists from news giant WTOP to put the story together, and the podcast is absolutely excellent. Download 22 Hours, an American Nightmare Now on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. New episodes come out every Monday. Check it out. This is Divorce Sucks, and I'm your host, Laura Wasser, and I've made it our mission to change the way we look at divorce. We are here with Susan Estrich, and we are talking about divorce, and we are talking about education, and we are talking about politics, and we are talking about gender, and she is enlightening us like only she can. The bottom line is that everybody has to figure out what's best for them in their next chapters and moving forward. Tell me, Susan, how do personal and political overlap in your opinion? How, how can we take what we've learned from the past, go forward into 2020, go forward into enlightening ourselves as women and men? And how, how do you think that we can hopefully find a candidate that will, that will work for America, man or woman? I, 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 if I knew that, honey, I'd pick up the phone <laughs> right now. I, I remember some years ago, some people from Hollywood wanted to take out an ad attacking. I don't know who the Democratic nominee was. 
And they said, what do you think of this ad? We're going to put it in the Wall Street Journal. And I looked at it and I said, would you like a phone number instead? <laughs> right? Because if you really have something to say and you feel that strongly about it, call. I think the Democrats face a really difficult task. I think there is so much hatred built up against Donald Trump among the Democratic base. That we can't see clearly? Not that we can't see clearly, but that there is a danger that we, you know, we end up too far in one direction to capture the majority we need. Because winning the Democrat, I used to write these rules, and then I used to run campaigns, and some of the guys I did it with are still at it for Biden and for Bernie. And it's a whole game to how you win the Democratic nomination, which unfortunately, my listeners, has very little to do with running, winning the general election. It tests a different set of skills. And so you've got a Bernie Sanders who I think could easily win the Democratic nomination, but I don't think could ever win a general election. Right. And those two things have not necessarily gone together. I mean, Iowa likes to pick candidates who are, you know, underdogs. I mean, that was the whole idea of the Iowa caucus in the first place. Jimmy Carter went out there and said, hi, my name is Jimmy Carter and I'm running for president. And all of a sudden this peanut farmer who none of us had ever heard of from Georgia, of all things, a one-term governor wins the Iowa caucus and launches his presidential campaign by racing to New Hampshire ahead of all the liberals and, you know, planting his flag in the ground. And that's the strategy. So, and that's a good thing sometimes, I always thought, because you want to in politics, you want to take on the establishment sometimes. And when I was young, I was really big on that. So you want rules that allow an underdog to emerge, as, for instance, Barack Obama did against Hillary. I mean, I think there's no question we picked the right candidate that time and that the primaries and caucuses really worked because he came out of it stronger for having defeated Hillary Clinton. And he was able to compete because it started small. And he didn't have to start with a national audience. He was able to build a uh, relatively inexpensive victory in Iowa. So that sort of catapulted him on. But this time, you know, you try to figure out the games and the numbers. And, you know, it's just very difficult. Because, Kamala Harris? Well, that's she's the obvious one with the best shot at, on paper at least, at upsetting Donald Trump. She makes sense to me. Of all the candidates, she has the easiest time putting together a coalition. But mark my words, she's going to be held to such high standards. I mean, not only is she a woman, but God help us, who is the next Barack Obama? I mean, I think it's time to realize that he was like a once-in-a-century kind of guy, all right? And that we cannot hold every candidate, particularly every black candidate who comes after him, to, you know, well, is she as good as Barack Obama? You know, no, and I'm not as smart as Lincoln, but can we move on here? Um, you know, so, so I think she has a very real chance, but it's a very tough process, and it doesn't always reward electability. And need I say... No one is talking about the African-American population of Iowa and New Hampshire. But, you know, we're talking about two states that do not entirely reflect what the Democratic electorate looks like mm -hmm. and who, in certain circumstances, you wouldn't pick to go first. So, so it's a tough one. Biden, of course, the last time he ran, got one delegate in Iowa. Time before that was against my candidate, and we better or for worse. We knocked him out before he got to Iowa with that silly tape of him borrowing Neil Kinnock's 
childhood and father and the whole thing, the British labor minister who was running in, in Britain at the time. Um, Biden was awfully, he's a wonderful man. Uncle Joe, we used to call him, just a fine human being. But you got to be really disciplined in this day and age to run for president. I mean, you are going to be under the microscope. Every place you go, somebody's got a damn phone up in the air. You make one mistake and it'll go viral. Back in 1987, I took over the Dukakis campaign primarily because I was out shopping at Bed Bath & Beyond for Labor Day weekend. I mean, you know, lest anybody think I'm a... a triumph of morality, what happened was that I was away for the weekend because I was moving in, I was moving back to Cambridge into a Harvard residence and I had to go to Bed Bath & Beyond and get my things like a college student and so I left the campaign office for the Dukakis for President campaign on a Friday and I said, I'll see you guys on Tuesday you know, my salary was being paid by Harvard anyway, as a full-time faculty member and while I was gone, the uh, campaign manager and the political director, the two guys running the show, decided to do something really clever. They put together this tape, and at the beginning of the tape was Neil Kinnock, who was then running for prime minister, who's the head of the Labour Party in Britain. And he was giving a speech talking about his background and his father being a minor or whatever it was. And then you hear, at the end of the tape, Biden giving exactly the same speech down to adopting Kinnick's father. And my friends put it together. Now, today, 9,000 people would be doing that virally within 15 minutes of the speech. But back then, they put it on a tape and they handed it to Maureen Dowd at the New York Times and to Dave Yepsen, the lead political reporter in Iowa. And it must have been a slow day because Maureen writes a front page story about the strange coincidence of Joe Biden and Neil Kinnick. And it goes all over the place. And Biden does what anybody in that situation does. He's got the same guys. They're very smart. He turns and says, whoever leaked this is out to destroy the Democratic Party and to destroy me on the you know, verge of the Bork hearings and whenever it was, a Supreme Court hearing. So ultimately, the two guys in my case, in my campaign, took the fall because I was like away for the weekend. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. And... There I was in charge. I was the last person standing. I begged the governor, you don't have to fire them. He said, I'm firing them. You can handle it. Okie dokie, I'll take care of a campaign on its tuchus right now. But what happened in the short run was that Biden, it was open season on Biden, and he ultimately dropped out and never even made it to the Iowa caucus. The Iowa caucus is not a measure of who's most electable nationally. Quite the contrary. When I was running Dukakis's campaign in the general election in 1988, we had this unbelievably memorable debate with Lloyd Benson and um, Dan Quayle. With Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle, we, you know, Quayle invoked John Kennedy to, to justify his youth and inexperience. When we had been practicing for the debate, I was pretending to be Barbara Walters sitting there, and I gave him this question, and we had the guy who was playing. Quail answer it with the answer Quail gives, which is, you know, John Kennedy was blah, blah, blah. He turned to me, and he, he's a gracious man. He looked at me and said, does he really say that? I said, he does. He said, well, well with your permission, my own candidate never asked my permission. With your <laughs> permission, I'd like to take him on for that. I said, what are you going to say? He said, well, John Kennedy was a friend of mine. And, you know, I knew John Kennedy, and, and this guy's no John Kennedy. I said, I would, 
I first asked him how good a friend, because I'm always a fact checker. He said, I was at the wedding. I said, fine. So when I went to the debate that night, I ran into Bill Clinton beforehand. He was our lead spinner. He said, what's going to happen tonight? I said, pray for John Kennedy. (laughs) I had people in the back room praying for John Kennedy. When Dan Quayle opened his mouth and did that John Kennedy thing, I thought Benson sort of winked at us. By the end of the night, Benson was the most popular man in America, the most respected, the most this, the most that. And it was easy to forget that when he tried to run in Iowa, he also got one delegate. I mean, it just didn't matter. All the traits that brought the country together behind him were the traits that made him sort of blah to activists looking to change the Democratic Party. So so Mayor Pete, I mean, he could well surprise the whole field in Iowa. What would that mean? Would that mean he could get elected president? Maybe not. Might mean that he should get elected in four years or eight years. Right. But that won't necessarily help us in 2020. Our guest today is a woman who believes in the power of controlling her own destiny. She is Susan Estrich, and she's guided and advised her clients through their worst crises. With 20 years of experience in national politics and 30 years as a television commentator, talk radio host, and syndicated columnist, she does soup to nuts when her clients need her. Tell us, Susan, what are you working on right now? Well, here's the good thing. I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Because the best thing I do for my clients is keep them out of podcasts and talk shows and headlines. Because what I've found in the modern day is that a lot of traditional lawyers just don't think about how this is going to play in every one of the other forums, whether it's the board meeting or the public or your investors or the street, the analysts. I mean, you got to think about all those things. It doesn't just matter whether you win in court. And this is particularly true in this Me Too era. Yes. Where, you know, when I sit down with a CEO and ask him my 10 questions, you know, are you 20? I don't even know to go to 20. You know, who's the person in your workplace that you've heard the most about? And, you know, there's always an answer. And then you say, well, what have you heard? And then you check it with some other people. And, of course, everybody's heard. Every workplace has, uh, you know, has dynamite. Right. A Tinder is all over the place right now, particularly since there's no time limit on it. It's not being defined legally. It's being defined in the court of public opinion. Media-wise, So yes. the best thing you can humanly do is get in there with a good lawyer and counselor like me. And Who keeps their mouth shut. And fix the problem. Who knows? I mean, I've been on television a million times. What do I need to do it again to get my name out there? Why? Um, my goal when I go into that situation is to resolve the problem without anybody ever bringing a single lawsuit and without a single headline to get in there, look at the company culture, look at the guidelines. The best thing you can do, even if you are caught is to be able to say, look, we've been working on this for the past two years. You know, this is not news to us. We've been working on it. We've instituted these disciplinary measures. And all of a sudden, you're part of the answer and not part of the past. And it's your whole theme with divorce. It's got to be the theme with life. All right. So on that move forward, on that note, can you give our listeners some advice for women who are starting over? Yes. And this is the best piece of advice you will ever get. Put your anger in a black box, okay? Put your guilt there too, but that's harder to do. Put your anger there because I go, I read what I wrote back then 
and it's true. It's imbued with a kind of anger I don't feel now. It's, it's not that I'm denying it. It's that a lot of it does dissipate. Mm-hmm. Once you get on with your own life and you see how you can live and live better without the anger and, frankly, without the abuse... Because most women don't separate from permanent, perfect men. I mean, whether they're cheating or you're disgruntled, I mean, these are not the prizes of the Western world, let's face it. So if they were, we'd still be with them. Um, So you got to start moving forward. You got to see clearly. And one of the ways I was able to do that, quite frankly, was every time I got angry, I thought of my kids. And I thought, someday they're going to look back and they're going to remember my kids were seven and ten. They're going to remember some parts of this. And better that they remembered that you were too generous, that you gave up too much, that, you know, you put them too far ahead. That you never spoke ill of their other parents. you never spoke ill, that you encouraged them to have a relationship because if you do the other, they will resent you forever. True. And if you do the other, you're keeping your anger in play forever. And you'd never, those women never move forward. You see them 20 years later and they're still talking about their damn and divorce. Can, and you can see it in their faces. And their faces are pinched and they're still angry and they'll tell you stories of things that happened 15 yep. years ago. And you're like, I don't remember anything that happened 15 <laughs> years ago. Co-parenting advice. Again, for moms and dads who are working the way you were while your kids were coming up? You have to relax a little bit, okay? I mean, if you're traveling a lot, as I was, you're going to either be giving up, quote, your time, or, what, leave your kids with a babysitter instead? I mean, you just, if you're working a lot, if you're away a lot, don't use the ruler, okay? You can't say, well, you had them for three days, so I'd like you to switch your entire life around to accommodate my work schedule. I mean, nobody's going to do that, right? right? And and you shouldn't ask, and you shouldn't definitely not put your kids in that position, because there's nothing worse you can do to your kids than, you know, coming over at nine o'clock at night and sitting outside and said, you're supposed to be with me tonight, to which your ex will respond, yeah, and you were supposed to come at five o'clock. Right. And you say, but I was in a big, big meeting. And he says, so go home. The kids are already in bed. And you know what? He's right. Okay. We can't have it all, all at once. Most of us, certainly I, I mean, I left tenure at Harvard because I had kids, you know, and because I was pregnant and because I couldn't keep commuting and I thought it was important for them to have a dad. And so I moved here. And when I get divorced, um, the one conscious decision I had to make, and I made it for better or for worse, was not to go back to Cambridge, where I was a tenured professor at Harvard and had all these connections and could run for office and, you know, was politically happy. My family was there. Everything was there except my kid's father. And I thought that I didn't want my kids to look back and say that when they were 7 and 10, I pulled them away from Los Angeles, fought to have custody, because I'm a Harvard professor, right? And brought them up in Cambridge, where they saw their father two two times a year, and it's my fault. Right. That they don't have a relationship with him. Uh, Do you hear that, listeners? Listen to that, because that was about her kids. It wasn't about her ex. No, it was about my kids. And so, for the interest of my kids, and the other thing you have to realize is that your kids will grow up. And they'll look at everything. They'll look back at how you behaved. But they'll, they'll also look at your, their parent, the other parent, the father or the mother. 
and they'll make their own judgments, okay? You don't have to tell them anything. And if you do, it will only reflect badly. They won't come to conclusions because you tell them. If you tell them that their father is a spoiled, you know, emotionally distant, whatever it is, they're not going to take your word for it. But somewhere along the way, he's going to be whoever he is with them. And they're going to make their own judgments. I mean, what happens to a lot of us is we get, you know, boxed into this idea they're going to go this week and then they're going to go that week. and then That never lasts, in my experience. Kids decide. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't want to live one week and one week and one week and one week in most cases. They end up deciding where their base camp is going to be. And if that's you, great. If that's not you, don't punish them for it, okay? They'll probably choose whichever parent they feel closest to or emotionally bound to or lives in a better house or a more convenient location or doesn't work as near much. Near their friends. Near their friends or Let's near their use their devices or, more often. Yeah, I mean, whatever <laughs> it is, one parent may be spoiling them with a fancy... It, you just can't take any of that to heart. And you have to remember that if you raise your kids to be good human beings, if you raise them with good values... If you put your anger in a box, they're going to end up seeing that. I mean, they really are. Kids are remarkably astute. And particularly kids of divorce. One of the hard parts for me, and I think for a lot of mothers, is divorce requires you, in a way, to put yourself first. And that's not a comfortable position for us. So we end up, if we're the ones moving for divorce, we end up giving up everything and feeling horrendously guilty. And I know so many people said to me, divorce is never good for kids. And the answer is no, divorce is lousy compared to having the perfect family, right? Right. Certainly the perfect family is great for kids. If if I could have done it, I would have. But It can be the lesser of evils. The second best thing for kids who don't have the perfect family is to have at least one good parent functioning at their very best. And putting the kids first. Because as long as you have one parent doing that, they'll have a model. They'll see it. They'll get it. Whether you're spending seven hours or six hours or four days or two days, they will get it. And you'll have the kind of relationship you want later on. And you will, you don't have to tank your ex-husband to do that. He'll do it himself. <laughs> if that's you know If that's who he is, he'll do it himself. But he'll do it. And, and your kids will have to deal with that. But it won't be your fault. And the last thing you want, I see it all the time, is these young adults, my kids' age and a little younger, who blame their parents, one or the other or both, for virtually everything. Mm-hmm. And it all dates to the divorce. And that's exactly what you don't want, you know? I mean, you really want to make it. If you can't do this, you're in the wrong business, which is put your kids first and figure out how you put yourself first in a positive way for both you and the kids. Agreed. Susan, you're an attorney, so I know that you are more than familiar with discovery. Yeah. And we've got some interrogatories, and we use them to gather relevant information about our guests. So we've adapted these vital <laughs> questions here at Divorce Sucks for our own purposes, including our Spotify playlist. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? As best I can. Okay. So I know that you're divorced, but tell us, are you dating anyone special right now? No. Our- I, I went through a trial. I used to speak a lot to Jewish women's groups, and I would always tell them the story. that One of the first things I learned as a single woman was a, a whole area of Jewish mythology that I didn't understand because I went on J-Date 
and I thought you were supposed to tell the truth. And I discovered things like, what is a Jewish 59? 65. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean... It, Our it, guests that are on other dating apps besides J, besides J. Oh, the Jewish one has found the true. same thing. It's all true, you know. And Jewish 5'9 is 5'7. <laughs> I mean, you had to deduct ad years, deduct this. <laughs> and, I, you know, I should keep doing it, but I have to decide at a certain point, two bad things happened to me online. The first was I found myself wasting a tremendous amount of time. I mean, even the time to drive to start Starbucks to have, you know, coffee with somebody who says, I hate ambitious women. Well, I think I'll leave exactly at this moment because if you hate ambitious women, I am the prototype of someone you would hate. But the worst thing was when someone would stop me in the street and say things like, I didn't realize you were that desperate. What? And I would be like, what? Who? Aren't you the one on TV? And I said, oh, dear. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just awful. So um, so I'm waiting for Prince, Laura. But, okay. you know, in the I'm meantime, sure I coming. raised a he's couple kids <laughs> and worked a couple jobs. And I mean, the most important thing, I, the most important mistake I think most women make in the wake of divorce is to want to replace their ex immediately. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to do that. I was looking for somebody around any corner who I could like. I met a, another a guy who was a, also a client of your dad's at the same time. Well, if we have that in common, maybe we're made for life, right? right? I mean, you're so desperate. And, you know, you overlook a lot of things to have someone being, my God, he's sending me flowers every week? Whoa, right? And you're so used to a certain kind of marriage that, you know, a lot of women I know rush into second marriages to prove to their ex-husband that they're just as good as Popsy, who he's now hooked up with. Popsy. Well, who else is what it is? They leave horrible. For, you think they leave for, you know, someone like us? No. Um, that's, somebody put it to me. I was married to someone like you. I said, okay. <laughs> but anyway, putting your kids first is really the, the best thing you can do. What's your favorite breakup song? Girls just want to have fun. I like it, Cindy Lauper. Okay, Spotify, here it comes. What would you say to cheer up a friend going through a breakup? Let's get a drink. Oh, I like that one. You know, I mean, you have to go through it, and your friends, you know, I could tell you. From now to kingdom come, how you should feel. Well, it doesn't matter what I tell you. Everybody knows how they should feel. They should put their kids first. They should put anger in the box. They should be rational. They should be fair. Very hard to do when you're mad as hell. Yes. And sometimes you just need your friends to say, let's have a drink. Unleash it on me. Okay. Rant and rave for the next half hour about how mad you are. And then at the end, let's figure out what you're going to do. What romantic comedy could you watch on repeat? Oh, Mamma Mia. Ah, oh, that's good. I mean, it's like frosting. <laughs> I was watching it the other day. My son and his girlfriend, they had never seen it. My daughter and I saw it on stage, but I'd never seen the movie. And it was just pure confection delight. Yes. I mean, no DNA testing. You know? <laughs> Nobody on a cell phone. It's just singing and dancing and 
sheer joy. Anyway. We've been speaking today about next chapters and mastering our own destinies. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself, said my friend Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is one of the reasons we've developed It's Over Easy, the online mediation platform for couples who want a divorce as simply, amicably, and cost-effectively as possible. You're part of our community now, and I want you to know that by tapping into your own ability to control your future, you tap into the power inside of you that can help you make your next chapter better than the last. Divorce is not easy, but the legal part shouldn't be so difficult. The choice is yours. Our guest today is my friend, politician, professor, lawyer, and writer, Susan Estrich. She is the celebrated feminist legal scholar and best-selling author whose recent works include Who Needs Feminism, Sex, and Power, Getting Away with Murder, How Politics is Destroying the Criminal Justice System, and Making the Case for Yourself, a Diet Book for (laughs) Smart Women. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today on Divorce Sucks. Please tell people where they can find you online. Oh, I'm a real lawyer and a real law professor, so, you know, I don't have social media stuff. (laughs) I just, you know, I'm a partner at Boy Schiller and a professor at USC Law School, and I think I have a Facebook page that runs my column. And she's got recent articles on creator.com. Creators.com is my syndicate. I write twice a week um, trying to bring, I don't know. Enlightenment. Enlightenment. I, I think I try to calm down and, you know, bring a... I hate Trump as much as you, but I listen to music on my way to work, you know, Uh that kind of attitude to our political discourse. And that's what we try to do for the discourse that goes on in a breakup. This is Divorce Sucks. Please leave a review for us at iTunes and tell us what you want to hear more of when we're back. More to come later. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, darling. Get to Old Navy Saturday for 50% off all sweatshirts. Frost-free puffer vests for 15 bucks for adults, 12 bucks for kids, and leggings. Just 8 bucks for women, 5 bucks for girls. Saturday at Old Navy. Valid 10-5, select vests only. 50% off excludes in-store clearance, active and licensed.